I want to invite you to open a Bible with me to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. I'm going to read verses 12 through 16. Here this spring, we've been looking at these opening chapters of the book of Acts, which describes for us the history of the church after the ascension of Christ. But remember what the book is showing us. It's the continuing ministry of Jesus through the power of his spirit through the ministry of the apostles. And Acts 5, 12 through 16 comes as a summary statement. But remember where we've been. We've seen the growth of the church, but growing conflict against believers. There is sin within the church. We saw it in the judgment that came upon Ananias and Sapphira. And there is persecution coming from without. Listen to the word of God, Acts chapter 5, verses 12 through 16. The apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people. All the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from their towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by evil spirits, and all of them were healed. This is God's word and encouragement to us. Let's come to him now in prayer. Father, we... We struggle to listen to your word because of the the chaos surrounding us. We come as those needing your comfort and guidance. And so, Lord, speak to us through the truth of the gospel. Let us see the ministry of Jesus, our Savior. Give us faith to believe, to trust in you. We come in Jesus' name. Amen. When my kids were little, we'd play a game while out walking. Okay, sometimes just from the car to the store. We'd run up when the other person wasn't looking and then jump and stomp on the other person's shadow and scream really loudly. And then, you know, the, the strategy was then that the, they would return the favor, that they would try and sneak up on you. And the best part was if you could jump right on the shadow's head because that means you'd gotten them. We'd duck, we'd try and hide, we'd, we'd, use, the, we'd use bushes and, and, and other shadows. And the, the game is best played late in the afternoon when the shadows are long. But we know there's, there's no real pain involved. I mean, the worst that you're doing is surprising the person with the scream, with jumping in front of them. But stomping a person's shadow is just a painless way to garner giggles because the shadow is nothing at all. It's just the absence of light. The, the, the shadow of Peter, though, did you notice here in Acts 5, what takes place? Look again at verse 15 with me. The people are bringing the sick into the streets so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Miracles taking place because a shadow of an apostle had passed by. See, this passage here, this summary statement, that to move the the, the the, the journey of Acts forward, this summary statement shows us that while there is growing conflict, miracles multiply. I mean, let's look here at the growing conflict. Look back at verses 13 and 14 with me in Acts chapter 5. We're told that, that there's a hesitation to join, and yet the numbers keep growing. See, verse 13 says, 
no one else dared join them. No one else dared join with the believers, the apostles who were gathered in public at the temple mound. They are gathered in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. Even though, verse 13 says, even though they were highly regarded by the people. See, there's a hesitation to be publicly aligned, publicly connected with the teaching of Christianity, with the apostles themselves. Now, Luke, the writer of this account, he clearly understands that there's a tension, the tension that, that, that people don't dare join them. But verse 14 then says, and yet more and more people are added to their number. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord. See, it's, it's unclear if those who are afraid to go and visit at Solomon's Colonnade are unbelievers, people who have yet to believe in the gospel, but they say, you know, it's dangerous enough here that we don't even want to be seen listening in. Or it might be that the tension is actually among those who are professing faith but are afraid to publicly align with the Christian message. See, they say they believe, but they believe sort of like, hey, that's good for me, that works while I'm at home. But I, I don't want to be publicly connected with the Christian faith. Because there's the dangers that we see. We just saw last week Ananias and Sapphira because of their sin, because of their rebellion against God, they were put to death. And so there's a hesitation. This seems rather serious. Do I really want to be involved? But worse than that, we saw back in chapter 4 that the religious leaders, the, the authorities have arrested Peter and John. We've, we've seen persecution rising. And so do I want to be publicly connected to a faith that is so risky? See, but that's not merely an ancient question. That's a question for many of our brothers and sisters in the gospel today. Many around the world who, who will face the threat of death if they align themselves with the Christian gospel message. And yet, are we willing to align ourselves, to publicly profess our faith? That's not a comment on whether or not you're gathered in this room, because I have been encouraging many of you to, to continue to worship with us online. It's not a comment about public worship. It's a comment about public acknowledgement and, and a public evangelistic witness. When your classmates wonder if, if, do people really believe that kind of stuff anymore? Will you stand up and say, Yes, this is why I believe the gospel. When you're worried about your job security, of, of being publicly connected to the Christian faith, do you, do you shy away from it? See, because I know many of you are willing to speak boldly about all kinds of issues. If I ask you about your favorite sports team and, and the great rivalries that your team has won, I mean, now, you haven't seen them play in a while, but you would tell me about last year's game or the, the year before, or, or some of you might have to, to go back generations to find that, that great pinnacle moment, but, but I can easily get you riled up. Or I could just ask you a political question. I'd just say, where do you s fall on this topic? And you would, you would immediately jump into, with excitement, why the position you believe is right. But do we do the same with the gospel? See, we're afraid of being connected with people that we think, well, you know, there are some people that, that they don't say it the way I would say it, and so I don't want people to think I'm a Christian. It's okay for me to privately believe, but I don't want to publicly be connected. But as one commentator says here, the tension in verses 13 and 14 is a reminder to us that there is no half-hearted adhesion to Christianity. You can't sort of, kind of believe. You can't privately believe and be a genuine follower of Christ. Because to follow Christ is to make a public commitment, to publicly declare that you belong to Jesus, even if it costs you something 
even if it costs us something dearly, as we see here in the book of Acts. See, even in times of conflict, though, we have the spread of the gospel, because verse 14 tells us, nevertheless, despite the hesitation of some people of being seen publicly with Christianity, more and more, look at verse 15, or verse 14, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. The gospel cannot be stopped. It cannot be slowed down. No matter our hesitation, the Spirit of God moves forward. Even when we prove faithless, God is still at work in the world. There is nothing that can stop the message of the gospel. And, and, and look again with me at verse 14. There's, there's a detail that when reading it, you and I might, might just skim right by. It says, verse 14, more and more men and women believed in the Lord. Now, that sounds like just the ordinary way you and I would say it today, that men believed and women believed. I mean, do you see how gender-specific Luke is being? Which to us sounds like, well, of course. Of course, look around. The, the church is filled with men and women. Of course we would say men and women believed. But in the ancient world, to publicly declare that women are at the core, at the center, that women are true and genuine followers, is not something you would advertise. Of course, it's something you would have to admit in ancient religious systems, but it's not something you would promote. And yet Christianity from the very beginning says, no, no, look, look with me. Men believe this gospel, but that's not all. Women believe this gospel. This gospel is for everyone. It's something that's promoted, acknowledged, lifted up. The true Christianity celebrates the value of men and women, exalts those who put their trust in Christ. It lifts them all up because each one of us has dignity and value and purpose in the sight of God. See, women are true, genuine disciples, something that many religions are hesitant to acknowledge. Okay, with the growing conflict in the church, though, we have miracles multiplying. You, you see the way that that's described to us in that, that opening verse, verse 12, sort of the summary statement for this passage. The apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people. It's a summary. It's saying this is what is ordinarily taking place. The ordinary here in the book of Acts is that the extraordinary of miracles are abounding. That miracles are taking place. But, but notice the, the phrase that's used there in verse 12. Miraculous signs and wonders. So that's the language the Old Testament used. Saying that it's not merely the miracle, but what is it the miracle points to? It's a sign pointing us to an even greater truth. Yes, there is excitement that a, that a man who was sick has been healed. That someone who was demon-possessed has been set free. But what is that really telling us? Well, in Exodus 34 we're reminded that the wonders of God, the miraculous signs of God, are always meant to do more than just tell us something about a historical fact. They're meant to point us, be a signifier of the truth of who God is. In Exodus 34, God says, I will do wonders never before done in any nation of the world. The people you live among will see how awesome is the work that I, the Lord, will do for you. See, these miracles are meant to be signs pointing to the great work of God. And so these miracles multiply during the ministry of the apostles because it's confirming for us the testimony, the witness that the apostles bring. They are those who have witnessed the resurrection, and so the miracles confirm the truth of what has taken place. The miracles show us the power of God. These miracles are evidence that should be believed. But I think many of us are skeptical of miracles. So we would say, how can a miracle be evidence? See, I would need so much evidence to even believe a miracle that there's no point in trying to use a miracle to be evidence for me. 
But is this really an open-minded position? Or have you just ignored the possibility of anything supernatural because it's more comfortable to you to be able to explain the world only in natural terms? Now, actually, this way of thinking is something we've inherited from the 18th century philosopher David Hume. Hume argued that we can't believe in miracles because miracles can't be scientifically examined. See, what he's saying is, since a supernatural, a supernatural explanation for an event is so improbable, therefore you can never use a supernatural explanation. Therefore, miracles don't happen. Now, Hume is saying, if you can't repeat a miracle, then you can't believe a miracle. See, the scientific method was, was coming of, of age in his day, and he said, no, that's where we get true knowledge, through our empirical senses. We can test something, and we can repeat it. And a miracle can't be repeated, therefore it can't be believed. Okay, now you might wonder why I would pick on a guy who's been dead for 300 years. Like, what does it matter? Well, I mean, maybe it's me just geeking out a little bit on the, on the historical philosophy, but the reason I, I pick on him is because this kind of thinking is still prevalent today. There were many in the church that believed themselves part of the church that said things like, you know what? Miracles are hard to believe. I think Christianity would be more palatable. It would be more believable if we got rid of these miracles. But see, if you get rid of the miracles, you get rid of Christianity. And today, even though many might not be able to, to quote David Hume, they believe what he taught. So the problem with Hume's way of thinking is not only does it destroy the possibility of the supernatural, which means it's no argument at all, he's just playing games with definitions. He's saying miracles can't happen because they're supernatural. The supernatural doesn't happen. Therefore, miracles don't happen. That's not an argument at all. See, but the real danger is, is not only does he do away with the supernatural, he does away with any historical knowledge. Because any event that happened in the past is, by definition, an event that can't be repeated. You don't test history in a scientific laboratory. So Hume would have to actually get rid of all historical knowledge. But worse, when, if, if Hume were honest, and this is, this is what, what, what philosophers wrestle with over the next several hundred years, is that Hume's skepticism, Hume saying you can only trust what you can touch or see, you can only trust what is empirically before you, actually gets rid of almost all knowledge. Hume ends up not being able to say anything. You can't even end up trusting what he tells you if you test it according to his own theories. See, if you're going to be skeptical, you need to be entirely skeptical. Not merely skeptical about miracles, but it's skeptical about all knowledge. And yet you know that communication is possible. You know that knowledge is possible. And so skepticism, full-blown, human skepticism, is untenable. So yes, you can follow a skeptical approach and give up miracles, but you better be ready to give up all possibility of knowledge altogether. See, the genuinely honest thing to do is say, hey, if something so big has happened here that maybe I don't have a natural explanation, the honest thing to say is maybe there's a bigger explanation, a supernatural explanation. See, now, now casting aside Hume's skepticism might not get you to the place of full belief. You might just realize you have now have a, an appropriate skepticism about skepticism but you want genuine knowledge, and that's what we're being told here. The apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. See, the, 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 the era of the apostles is one in which they are witnesses to the gospel message, and so the miracles confirm the truth of what they're teaching. 
you and I have the full evidence before us of all of these miracles written down, announced to us. We have the testimony of the the multitude of the apostles written for us in the word of God. And so you have evidence before you. Will you be honest enough to consider it? Because these signs are meant to point to the greater reality of Jesus's power. See, and if you get rid of miracles, then you get rid of Christianity because what has been the message here in the book of Acts? That Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. That he died in the place of sinners. That you and I conspired in our sin and we've condemned Jesus to death. But God did not abandon him to death, but God raised him from the dead. See, at the center of the Christian faith is this miracle. The central miracle of history, of our lives, of the word of God. This is what you're being called to believe. And, 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 and even the fact that, 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 it's, that it's Peter's shadow that's used is a reminder to us this has nothing to do with the apostles. The power, the, the sign is not meant to point to, wow, Peter was a great guy. Peter has great power. No, the fact that God doesn't even use Peter but merely uses his shadow is pointing us that what is this a sign of? What are we supposed to see? We're supposed to be in awe of the wonder of what God is doing. The ultimate miracle Pointing, these miracles pointing to the ultimate miracle of Jesus' resurrection. And notice the, the, what, what are the people believing in verse 14? They're believing in the Lord. They're believing. See, that's a, that's a claim of resurrection hope, that Jesus, this, this kid who grew up in Nazareth, is truly the Son of God who died in the place of sinners and at the resurrection was declared to be the Lord, to have the same title given to, the, to God himself, that Jesus is God himself. Do you believe this? And yet, the miracles multiply because the gospel is growing. It's growing not only in the number of people that are believing, but in, in where this gospel is being taken. Look with me at verse 16. Peter, having walk, just walking through the streets, is seeing miracles take place as his shadow falls on, on, on those that are sick. And then verse 16 tells us, crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem. Everything we've seen so far in the book of Acts is taking place right here in Jerusalem. But remember, the mission that Jesus gave his apostles was to take the message out from Jerusalem into the surrounding towns, into Judea and Samaria. And then from there, to take it to the very ends of the earth. That's, that's what Jesus told them back in chapter 1, verse 8, which is really sort of a summary of the entire book of Acts. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, we've seen people from the ends of the earth on the day of Pentecost come to Jerusalem. And so we've been given hints that the gospel is going out into the the surrounding world. But this is the first time that that the other towns, that other places are mentioned in the book of Acts. See, these miracles are beginning to spread the gospel message, to fulfill the mission of the church. People are coming They're bringing in their sick. They're bringing those that are demon-possessed, and they are being healed. Even in growing conflict, the gospel continues to spread. The miracles here affirm the message of the apostles. These signs and wonders point to the greatness of God. God has done the miraculous. He's raised Jesus from the dead. See, but when we read this summary, and and that's what it is. It's a summary between the, the, the more involved stories in the book of Acts. We can, we can kind of jump through a summary thinking, well, it, it's just a summary. Let's move on. Let's get back to the action. 
we can, we can read it too quickly. We can skim the summaries and miss the impact. Because the crowds are gathering because of their desperation. You can think of these families bringing the sick. They've had no other options, no hope. They are desperate, bringing those possessed by demons, by evil spirits. They're coming in their desperation with little hope left. But notice how this summary takes place. In verse 12, we're told that the apostles are performing many miraculous signs. And then look at, look at how it concludes in verse 16. That those, the, the sick and those who were tormented by evil spirits were brought. And look at the end of verse 16. And all of them were healed. All of them were healed. That's an impressive summary. That's a, a, an impressive conclusion, a, a dramatic conclusion here. That everyone is healed who is brought. See, and see, the signs and wonders of Scripture, yes, point us backwards in history to the work of God, that he is the God of the Exodus. He is the God of the cross, the one who sent his son. He is the God of the resurrection. But they also point us forward to this kind of hope when everyone will be healed. It's a sign pointing us to our greater longings, which are still to come in the return of Christ. You know, in my study, I have a a study Bible, but it's broken. The binding is broken. And so it's at risk of losing the like, concordance and the, the notes at the very end of the book, which those wouldn't be a huge loss. The problem is it's broken right before Revelation 21 and 22. They're the last two chapters in the entire Bible. And you might think, well, Kevin, you've got most of it. I mean, you've got 99.9% of your Bible left. But think of what's there in the end of the Bible. A, a Bible that doesn't have the ending is useless to us. It's incomplete. Because what's there at the end of the Bible is the promise that God will heal all of our brokenness, all of our diseases, that God himself will wipe every tear from our eyes. See, the miracles here in the book of Acts are a confirmation that God has worked in the past and that God will continue to work in the future. They point us forward to what God has promised to do, that all of them were healed. Sarah's phone rang at 2.13 in the morning. It was a nurse at the hospital. They needed to come right away. So Sarah wakes her husband, Matt. Their newborn son, Bowen, had just had open-heart surgery the day before. He'd been born with an underdeveloped heart. As Matt and Sarah enter the pediatric intensive care unit, they see a nurse holding their son's heart between her fingers, physically beating it to keep him alive. The room felt chaotic as doctors and nurses move about. So Sarah moves to the foot of her son's bed and just holds his little feet. Dad, Matt, just wraps his arms around his wife and weeps. When they're ushered out of the room, they expect that they are saying their final goodbye. Matt explains the emotions of that moment. He says, at one point I remember praying, Father, if this is even a fraction of the pain you felt when you gave your only son, then I thank you for letting Jesus die on the cross. Put into motion the redemptive healing power of your son's death to spare the life of our son. See, Matt describes that in that moment, he, he thought that they were watching God usher their son into heaven or, or ushering in a miracle. I mean, but don't you see? 
those are both miraculous conclusions. That we who have put our faith in Christ have the promise that even upon our death, we will be with God forever because he is the one who wipes away every tear. See, the miracle of radical healing points us to the power of God. The miracle of our presence with him at death points us to the miracle of Jesus' resurrection. Matt, the father, continues. He says, shortly after we prayed, a nurse entered the room and told us what we never expected to hear. Dad, you still have a little boy in the next room. Now, Bowen just sang with his dad. His dad, Matt Hammett, was the lead singer for Sanctus Real. They just sang in a worship concert together. He's 10. And yet, for us, we have a longing for the miracle, for the work of God in our lives. But that's exactly what God is doing. These are the signs and wonders pointing us back to the hope of the resurrection, but pointing us forward to the coming of Christ when his resurrection power comes in its fullness, when we will see the fulfillment of these kinds of promises, when all of them were healed. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, your word is a challenge to our hearts. For those that hesitate to believe, that sit today in unbelief, I pray, Lord, that you would give them faith to believe that we would be honest enough to see in your word the power of the gospel. Lord, I pray that this week as children hear the gospel message through Vacation Bible School, that they would respond to this good news. Lord, give us opportunities this week to be bold in our proclamation of the gospel and our witness to Jesus. Father, I pray that you would strengthen us. Lord, that we who live in the midst of a broken world would long for the coming of your kingdom. Father, we come praying in Jesus' name. Amen.